This episode of Desert Island Dishes is brought to you in partnership with the independent, family-run butcher, H.G. Walter. Now, I'm particularly excited about this because for over 10 years, I have been a customer of H.G. Walter for both my cooking jobs and also for at home too. They are one of the most respected butchers in the UK, supplying some of the best chefs and restaurants in the country. So it's quite cool to know that you are getting restaurant quality meat at home. And I know I've said this a million times before, but if you start with good ingredients, your life as a cook is so much easier. You barely have to do anything for it to taste delicious. And we know that good quality meat is more important than ever. If you're anything like me, you are thinking more and more about the provenance of the food you eat. And so having a butcher you can trust like HG Walter is just a very comforting thing. Also, never underestimate the knowledge of a butcher. If you don't know how to cook something, ask when you're in there. They know so much. They can advise about cooking times, the weight you need, and they'll always have delicious ideas for how they like to serve something. I found this kind of information absolutely invaluable when I was starting out as a chef. So I am thrilled to be telling you all about HG Walter today. They're based in London, but they deliver nationwide and you can find out more at www.hgwalter.com. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Margie Nomura and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven desert island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. The question is, what would you choose as your last meal? Hi, I hope you're all very well. I have a lovely episode for you today with the wonderful Bea Wilson. And the only thing I wanted to flag before we start is the sound of the building work in this recording. It was happening outside the window and it's always the way. Everything is silent and perfect for recording. And then you press record and they start drilling or moving an entire bottle bank or (laughs) something similar. So I am very sorry about that, but hopefully it won't distract too much. And another gentle reminder to anyone listening, if you haven't yet subscribed to my newsletter, Dinner Tonight, please do think about it. It's one easy weeknight recipe, often one pan, mostly 30 minutes or less, and I genuinely look forward to writing it every week, and it's just amazing that there are so many people reading it. I think there are now over 22,000 of you, which is just incredible but there's always room for more. (laughs) So if you like the sound of that, then go to desertislanddishes.co and there are lots of boxes across the website where you can pop your email in or you can go to uh, dinnertonight.substack.com and sign up that way. So without further ado, I hope you enjoyed today's episode and thank you so much for listening. My guest today is Bee Wilson. Bee is one of the most interesting and thought-provoking food writers and historians we've ever known. She is the author of eight books about food and eating. Her books have won multiple awards and she's won five Guild of Food Writers Awards for her journalism. After over 20 years of food writing, this year she released her first cookbook, The Secret of Cooking something she says she's dreamt of doing since the age of eight. She's been described by Yota Motolenghi as the ultimate food scholar and writes brilliantly about all aspects of our current food culture. 
welcome B. Thank you so much for having me. Such a pleasure. And I'm so happy to have you on Desert Island Dishes. You've written so much about how we develop tastes and ways of eating from a young age. I'm very interested to get into the first Desert Island dish. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. It's impossible to narrow it down to one, isn't it? Because when I think of my mother who who died a year ago and who who had um, dementia for a few years before she died, and write about the dementia a little bit in the cookbook... But as I was writing the book, I was constantly thinking of being in her kitchen and I still have various utensils belonging to her. And when I'm holding her wooden spoon, I feel as if I'm holding her hand almost. So it's, this has been a very vivid question to me. And there are so many, like she, and she was a kind of Delia Smith sort of cook. So there were lots of fish pies and delicious stews with parsley flecked dumplings and lots of soups and um, other things. But One of the things that she was really fond of, which one of the recipes in my cookbook kind of relates to, she used to love, um, she'd have called it probably sort of eggs on cocotte, like Mm. taking eggs, putting them in a buttered ramekin and putting them in the oven. And you might add stuff to it or you might just have it just as it is with soldiers. I mean, if I'm honest, some of my childhood memories are things like, you know, canned (laughs) Heinz tomato soup. But Mm. the couple of times I've gone back to that, I think, oh... I remember this tasting great, and now my palate has changed. Is that what it is? Our palate has changed, or have they changed the recipe? Because I've had that recently, where it's all I've craved, and it just doesn't answer in the same way. (laughs) I think it's both. I mean, we know that there was a massive salt reduction, which is a good thing, a salt reduction scheme in the UK a couple of few years ago, where all the big ultra-processed food manufacturers voluntarily removed a portion of salt without informing people. So things like baked beans and Heinz tomato soup don't taste quite the same. But I think it is more palate Mm. transformation that which is kind of a positive thing in a way. One of the things I was interested to read was that you write that eating is a series of skills that you can learn at any time, not just when you're a child, which is such an interesting point and one that I really hadn't seen talked about in that way before. Can you talk to me a little bit about the series of skills involved in learning to eat? Yeah, so this was that was the theme of my book, First Bite, mm. and the subtitle of that book is How We Learn to Eat. And... The subtitle sort of came to me almost like a revelation of, oh, we learn to eat. I'd never actually seen it like that. I'd sort of assumed in a way that eating was something like breathing that you're Mm. born knowing how to do. Mm. But the more I delved into the research, the more I saw that can't be the case. Because if you were to take people living in radically different parts of the world, other than breast milk, which is a constant everywhere that's you every person in the world starts their life with milk Mm. some form or other after that it's all up for grabs so like if you were learning to eat in some country in South America you're going to have completely different things you're exposed to than Mm. someone learning to eat in Africa or someone learning to eat in Italy or someone learning to eat in the UK so the more I looked at this thought the more I saw oh this is this partly explains how we've many of us have got in the mess that we have and the unhappiness often that we have with food, whether we're talking about a young child being picky and unhappy about food that way or we're talking about older people suffering eating disorders. Mm. But it also seems very hopeful because if you see eating as a series of skills, you can relearn them yep. at any age and everything is malleable. Um, so some of the skills of eating would be Knowing how to recognise your own hunger and fullness cues, Mm. which is something that 
no one's really ever taught. And previous generations, I think, did have their own way of dealing with these things, but some of the ways they had of dealing with it were very punitive. So it'd be kind of finish up everything on your plate. You know, this thing of mm. leaving a clean plate. Well, I think that stayed with a lot of people. So they, they're not in tune with their own hunger because if there's something left on the plate, they must finish it. I Absolutely. Feel like, yeah. And that was how I was brought up. Mm. I mean, my mum was a wartime baby. She was born in 1941. So she had a horror of food waste, but she also had quite a complicated relationship with food herself, was endlessly going on diets. And because she'd... If you feel you should eat up absolutely everything on your plate and you can't bear to see scraps, you're probably going to overeat, which is what would happen with my mum. And mm. then she'd berate herself for having gained weight and then she'd gone on a diet. And from having witnessed how unhappy it made her, I then, yeah, my sister and I both in our different ways developed quite disordered relationships with food. But so finish everything on your plate, totally how I was brought up. And there's still something in it where there's part of me that feels it's good manners. And mm. there, is, there are totally situations, if I'm at someone else's house, I absolutely yeah. want to show them <laughs> I love their food. Especially being a food writer, I feel yes. like you're under quite a lot of pressure. People are looking to see whether you And actually, I'm very it. easily pleased. <laughs> I enjoy most food. I'm just <laughs> delighted when someone else has done the cooking for change. So, oh. so there are scenarios where I totally would still adopt that. But I think as a general principle in life it really as I say goes against the grain but to teach yourself actually your own body is the best judge of when to stop eating okay let's pause there and talk about the second desert island dish what's the first dish you learned to cook one of the ones that I remember that my mum taught me and my sister how to make at a very early age was cheese souffle it kind of taught me so much about cooking and why it's magical and because that was one of the first things I learned to make, when I'd hear people saying, oh, souffles are so hard or so complex, I never really understood it because she had just shown us all you do is you separate the eggs. And I remember just finding that process alone so satisfying. I'm like, here are the whites and here are the yolks. And then she'd get out her rotary handheld whisk, which actually is the most inefficient way. My, I always use electric, <laughs> electric whisk so much quicker. But I have a recipe in my book in the section for cooking alone, which is for cauliflower cheese mm. souffle, but it's flavoured with nutmeg, like my mum's souffles almost always were. And I just, I remember, I can close my eyes and just picture the textures of that dish and how satisfying it was. You would make the bechamel, then you'd stir the yolks into the bechamel and you could see that lovely deep yellow colour kind of just imbuing that whole white sauce with something rich. And then you're grating the cheese and the different tasks would kind of be portioned out between me and my sister and it just tasted so comforting mm. at the end because you've got kind of melty cheese but you've got that cloud-like souffle texture and it's only one notch more difficult in a way than making an omelette mm, it really is but so many people I think are scared and I think maybe it shows like MasterChef that have scarred a lot of people because you watch someone's souffle collapse at the important moment but TV cooking isn't home cooking. Absolutely. So. <laughs> and also a collapsed souffle still tastes delicious. Yeah, it tastes it? exactly the same. It's just You've always got the whisking of the eggs. You're never going to lose that all of that work you've put into mm. the whites. There's always an inherent lightness. Obviously, if you manage to eat it all cloud-like straight out yeah. of the oven, great. 
but it's it's always good. And then it's those kind of crispy bits around the edges. Yeah, those bits are so good. Mm. <laughs> in one of your books, you talk about the memoirs of prisoners of war in the Second World War and how the common theme is not only hunger, but the fevered memories that give rise to all the things they would eat once they were free. And very seldom would they dream of grown-up, sophisticated food, but in reality, it was the food of childhood and home food you describe as stodgy, filling and safe, which is so interesting and also completely understandable, but I think gives us a real insight into what food really does mean to us. Hmm. I think food is always has an emotional component mm. and the emotional component is almost always linked to other people. But, mm. I mean, it makes sense because as we're learning to eat, our parents are giving us love and sustenance at the same time and it's often hard to distinguish the two. Mm. And I think sometimes, I think what's so sad about the way a lot of us eat now is, I also say in that book, sugar is not love, but it can feel like it. Mm. If I look at the point at which my relationship with food went disordered, which was not coincidentally after my parents' divorce when I was 14, mm. I'd so often kind of associated sugar with treats that it's almost like it doesn't take a kind of genius to figure out that if you're suddenly really binge eating things like chocolate fudge cake, um, and tubs of ice cream, you're giving yourself love at a moment that you're feeling sad and abandoned. Mm. Sometimes people say just food is just calories or food is... I think we've completely misunderstood mm. what food is. Food is always cultural for everyone across the world. And I think those cases of people in a state of extreme hunger where food is still or even especially about more than just calories. It's absolutely about home and place and cuisine and belonging. Mm, it's so interesting. You talk about food memories and flavour memories being part of our actual sense of self, how we can actually feel very protective of those foods, even if they're things that we haven't had for years. And I thought that was so interesting to think of food in this way and how it relates directly to our own identity. Yeah, I think whatever kind of food you're fond of it relates to your own identity I mean it famously in Italy people will almost come to blows about whether certain pasta dishes should be made with garlic or onion or neither because from region to region these apparently very similar dishes are made in such different ways mm. by grandmothers and mothers and then people get so attached to that it's something they'll almost just have disputes over mm. because it being made differently is seen as an actual attack on their own identity. But I think one of the saddest things about the way we eat, which hasn't been analysed anything like enough, I mean, the success of the ultra-processed food manufacturers in wheedling their way, not just into our lives, but into our love relationships. You know, Chris Van Tullican's just written a great book, Ultra-Processed People, about ultra-processed food. People are becoming so much more aware of what it is, and it is linked to so many poor diet outcomes. You know, all of us, I would imagine, unless you're living in a very isolated, amazing farm-to-fork state, eat some ultra-processed food. I certainly do. But the quantities that are now eaten where it can make up maybe 50% of the average person's calories in the UK mm. is clearly not a good thing. But the task of unravelling that, it isn't just rational. I think that's what I'm saying. It's emotional. It's deep and it's emotional so no wonder people get misty-eyed with nostalgia talking about them. Wow. And no wonder people feel quite affronted at the thought that anyone might regulate that. Not that 
you know, no government in the world is suggesting banning ultra-processed food, but mm. it would be great if people had more affordable alternatives, mm. more, if, if that was just something that was easier yeah. for people. Yeah, so interesting. Let's pause there and talk about the third desert island dish. What's the best dish you've ever eaten? So I'm really torn because I once ate a vegetable risotto in Venice that made me think I had no idea that either vegetables or risotto could taste like this, where it was just every vegetable tasting of itself and mm. distinct and every grain of rice that was just perfectly cooked and yet soupy and sort of fluid on the plate in a way that I've attempted to achieve many, many times since with many risottos and love risotto. It's one of my comfort foods, but have never actually recreated that. Mm. But the one that I would think of for years, which is really strange, simple one, one of the first times I ever went to France as a child, we had this meal that was quite an elaborate meal and I remember there being some kind of delicious fish on the table and but there were these boiled potatoes. And in my family, people would sometimes say, oh, Bee's got her boiled potato face on. Oh. <laughs> and what that meant was that when these boiled potatoes arrived at the table, that makes them sound so boring, but they were like kind of saturated in butter. And they had been, you know, like in French cooking, when they peel something and then sort of turn it, like, you know, beautiful geometrical shapes of a kind you wouldn't ever attempt at home. And they just, they must have just been better potatoes. They must have been grown in better soil, cooked in better butter, perfectly seasoned. I've sort of been chasing a dream of those potatoes ever since and have never I love that. What, so the, it became a family saying that, that the face of happiness was your potato Was my face. boiled potato face. <laughs> I don't know what I looked like, but I kind of was <laughs> grinning to ear, from ear to ear. <laughs> you also there mentioned comfort food. And I thought that's so interesting because... You talk about how health and pleasure are often put in different boxes and the notion that comfort food could be something healthy is very alien to people. I think there are certain foods that people think of when they think of comfort food. And I had an experience of this recently on social media where I posted a video of my mom making me a salad and I said, this is one of my comfort foods. And I didn't mean the salad. I meant mm. the process of my mom cooking for me. But people got really incensed that I could be How suggesting strange. that a salad, kind of was, salad a was it food. I mean it was very delicious but it was a mm. version of I guess a version of a salad niçoise with oh, like wonderful. freshly seared tuna and and it just to me comfort food is when someone's lovingly made you something of course it can also be macaroni cheese and you know a chicken pie on a cold winter's mm. day but I just thought when I read that you talked about that subject I just thought it, I'd never heard anyone really talk about that before yeah I, th I think there were all of these really strange knee-jerk assumptions we have about what comfort can be and what health can be and mm. I feel the more you can somehow align your idea of healthy food which you know your idea of what your body needs may not be the same as what anyone else thinks you, there's we are all different when it comes to food but still you can align health and comfort and put them in the same mental box instead of different ones well it's strange the notion that a comfort food being something that might make you feel a bit guilty afterwards or uncomfortable or you, i don't know something that you overeat like there's comfort in the process of eating something like that, but are we really taking comfort in how you feel afterwards? Whereas surely there's comfort in something that is nourishing and delicious and makes you feel good. I, I completely know. agree. I mean, why would you think it comforting if it also causes you guilt? Guilt mm. is a horrible emotion. Shame is a horrible emotion. And I say that as someone who, in my teenage years, would 
binge eat in secrecy and shame and that was not a comfort that was a, one of the nastiest most unsettling feelings loneliest feelings in the world mm. and my heart goes out to anyone who's still in that relationship with food and it's a completely key thing to enjoying food and eating better at any age is switching off the unkind voice in your head mm. that says you should be guilty about anything there's no good or bad there's no good or bad but strangely the more you switch that voice off the more you can actually listen to your body and the more i find speaking of myself i do gravitate towards salads as comfort food and don't like that i mean i love cheesy creamy things as well Mm. but and kind of hearty winter food but that feeling when your stomach is kind of overloaded to me isn't a yeah. pleasant feeling. Like, I, I love that feeling of just that food has given you what you want from it. Mm. The food culture and landscape that we currently have has obviously never existed before in the way that it currently is. Do you think we fetishise food? Yeah, I think we do. And I think one of the strange things, we fetishise the look of food, mm. which totally makes sense given it's a social media age. Mm. And what can you be responding to on Instagram except for the look of food? Like, mm. you're kind of thinking, oh, that looks like it tastes good, but how on earth do you know? You're just yeah. going on the fact that it's on a really pretty plate and it's been beautifully arranged. And it's almost like we're living in this sort of great era of food still life artists, but they're working in photography rather than painting. Mm. But I think at its worst, as you suggest, there is this kind of fetishism of particular ingredients or a sense that things need to be garnished perfectly in order to be worth making. Mm. And that's the point at which I think it's quite potentially toxic and maybe toxic is too strong a word, but unhelpful. Mm. Um, And I think it, it can be just hard to kind of screen out all of that noise around food when you're just trying to figure out what to make yourself for dinner. Yeah. We love watching cooking shows. You know, food on social media is, as you say, huge. We make podcasts about food, she says very sheepishly. Um, And yet we're told that people are cooking less and less. That's a kind of weird dynamic there. Do you think, does that purely come down to time? Because we saw during lockdown, people were cooking more and more. And that was because people had more time so is that is that purely what the answer is as to why we're just busier than we've ever been before the the first thing I'd want to unpack there is the word people Mm. because something I wrote about in my book the way we eat now endlessly we get told these messages people don't have time to cook Mm. who do these messages benefit the makers of ready meals the makers of ultra processed Mm. food think you we need to take those messages with a bit of a pinch of salt secondly as you say the lockdowns and the pandemic took a divided food culture and probably made it still more divided Mm. between the people cooking and the people reliant on the ultra-processed foods. But it definitely showed that when people feel they have more time, many, many more people actually relished the process of cooking. And I've spoken to so many people who said, I just didn't realise, thought it was hard, thought there was a kind of mystique around it. And then with the structure of having to do your nine-to-five gone or at least changed through the zoom thing where you were at home suddenly discovering oh actually i i can make this Mm. pasta dish or i can knock together this stew and it's so satisfying yeah or discovering that not only cooking is about of course the end result but you can also get so much from the actual process of cooking and i think that's what a lot of people 
learnt, maybe? I think so. And I think people haven't entirely gone back. I hope they haven't. I know that cookbooks were like a... When you talk to publishers, they'll say the amount of cookbooks they sold during 2020 just skyrocketed. Really? So that tells us something Mm. about people at home suddenly discovering that it was something exciting. Yeah, that's Mm. a really interesting point. B, we're on to the most important question of the day, the fourth desert island dish. What is your favourite sandwich? (laughs) I find this, of of all your questions, they're all very hard to answer. (laughs) I wrote a whole very short book about sandwiches. It's so hard to limit yourself to a single sandwich. (laughs) But I do have a sandwich recipe in the book, which is based on a sandwich which is very dear to my heart, so I'm going to talk about that. Mm. My sister, who eats in a completely different way from me, always has done. And there's this great Vietnamese deli near where she lives where they serve this sandwich that's essentially a kind of hybrid of the classic American hoagie deli sandwich, which would come stuffed with kind of cold cuts and maybe Mm. pickles and salad and other delicious things, and a Vietnamese banh mi. Mm. Um, And they do do a meat version of it, but the one that we always get, because she's vegetarian, is a tofu Bon me sandwich. And that sounds dull. And I've, I was then death, but it's just the one that you get in Philadelphia, the tofu is so juicy and it's so brimming with flavors of soy sauce and garlic. And it's kind of, it's, it's juicy and it's meaty. And then in this, their sandwich, there'd be some mouli and some pickled carrot and some, you can opt to have it with or without chilies. I would always have it with the green chilies and some coriander. Anyway, so I, it took me ages to try and recreate this sandwich. I had a lot of false attempts. And then... Is the tofu crispy? In my one, it's yeah. kind of crispy and juicy at the same time. I know okay. that usually, if you're a tofu sceptic, <laughs> the way to get someone to eat it is go with the crispy one. Mm. The crucial thing is, first of all, you must press it to get the moisture out. So sometimes I use my pestle. Mm. You really want to expel as much moisture as possible. And a good vegetarian sandwich... Mm. It's quite hard to come by. If you look at the great sandwiches of the world, almost all of them centre around meat. It's true. Until now. Until now. (laughs) (laughs) So you've been a food writer, writing about food in all sorts of forms, but this book is your first recipe book. What inspired you to write a cookery book with recipes now? As you say, I've kind of been dreaming about it for 40 years. Um, I think for years I thought, well, what's the point? I haven't got anything to add to this wonderful collection. And then the more I thought about it, the more I thought that there is space for a book. Well, I was speaking to myself as much as to anyone. A book that even if you've got all these other cookbooks on the shelf, how do you somehow pare cooking down to the point that you're able to do it on those days when you're just flat out tired and you wish that someone would bring you a bowl of soup but Mm. you realise the person is going to have to be you (laughs) because your mum isn't there anymore or how do you get the spark of cooking back when the context for me of writing this book was my husband of 23 years suddenly left me at the end of the first lockdown and so the first time in such a long time I was cooking alone some mm. of the time which is actually for so many people in Britain a completely normal everyday experience we don't talk enough about that mm. you've described it as your lockdown project kind in a way and in respect it, it was a heartbreak project as you were going through something horrible and you've said that it it saved you and I, I thought that was very similar to Adele with her songs <laughs> uh, you've taken something I'm, horrible and channeled it I'm into really something honored. very very honoured <laughs> <by the comparison. laughs> But it's true. I think there is something really 
lovely in in someone going through a challenging time and working on a project that then they share with the world and it's I don't know it really is true it the strange thing is I I remember when he left thinking because I'd already signed the contract to write the book I'd already written the proposal I'd already written a load of stuff in the proposal about how cooking rather than being a problem could be a soothing thing or a salve Mm. and then he left and my first thought was I just can't do this and then I was like no I have to do it And it was in a funny way exactly what I needed. And it kind of taught me the truth of all of these things I'd said in the proposal, that it really is a comfort. It really did bring me back to my senses. It really did reconnect me with the person I was before I'd met him such a long time ago in a way that nothing else except maybe music Mm. could do. It's so interesting. We're going to pause there and talk about the fifth desert island dish. What's the dish you eat the most often? Well, if I were to look back to the lockdown, it would be a very simple answer. So I'm just going to think back to then. I mean, things evolve and Mm. there's probably all sorts of things that my son and I eat now, which, yeah, but we still eat this a lot. So I think it's fair to say. Um, Some version of minestrone type thick soup, Mm. which has pasta and some kind of chickpeas or beans. Then I just essentially started making this every single day. And it kind of evolved and the flavour profile... Sometimes I'd still make it Italian like that and the flavour profile changed. So the one I have in the book is called Adaptable Ash. Ash being a whole family of Persian soups, Mm. which is so central to Persian culture that someone who cooks is known as a maker of ash. Oh, wow. And I just... I've never been to Iran, so I've got no claim to know really what an ash should taste like, but I consulted as many books on Persian food as I could and spoke to Persian friends about it. But essentially, it's similar to a minestrone, but it's got some either red lentils or mung dals thrown in, as well as the can of beans or chickpeas. So it's got a kind of double legume thing going on. The section that you say you loved writing the most in the book is the section on eating alone, which we just briefly touched on. In that, you include a lovely quote from Marion Cunningham, where she says, Sometimes eating supper alone feels private, quiet, and blessedly liberating. You may eat anything you want. And you also go on to say that cookbooks that repeatedly have a recipe as serving four people are actually incredibly tactless for the number of people that are actually eating alone. Yeah, I do say that, don't I? I'm now thinking, that's really harsh because, because there are some great cookbooks that say serves for and they're not meaning to make people feel bad. I think what I'd say more is the default thing, the, the idea mm. that serves for is just the, the de- normal yeah, thing. Yeah. Does, it's weird we've got to that place where... It, it's weird we've got to that place, especially as society is changing. I mean, mm. we know that the number of one-person households is going up and up and up, not just in Britain, but all over the world. Yeah. And it would be really nice to see that acknowledged mm. because one of the things that has made me sad, I mean, I'm talking about people before I wrote the book, but also even more so now as I'm kind of going around and giving book talks and speaking to so many people who'll put their hand up and say, well... I like cooking when it's for other people. When it's just me, I can't really be bothered. Mm. And it's that word just. Mm. And that's... Like you matter too. You matter. And I think cooking is always, in some ways, an act of love. I mean, certainly it is for me. And who could be more deserving of that love than yourself? Mm. And I think it actually, in a subtle way, it does change your relationship with yourself when you cook yourself something really nice and special for no particular reason. Mm except that there's always a good reason to cook because you're, it's you and it, you're 
this is how you nourish yourself. This is how you mark the end of a day. Yeah, you're not probably going to want to make yourself a three-course dinner yeah. on a daily basis. <laughs> but if you do, that's fine. If you do, I absolutely tip my hat to you and I, I would like to come around to your house and share what you're eating. Thank you very much. But what you do want to make yourself one bowl or plate of something that really just makes your heart sing slightly. So I really enjoyed developing. I have these two categories of recipe. I have one where you buy one pack of sausages. I'm assuming your sausages come in packs of six. Mm. And spin it three different ways. So you, there's one dish that was is one of my absolute comfort dishes where you make yourself some soft, cheesy polenta. Mm. Then you crumble the sausage out of the skins, cook it with some garlic, some chilli, some dark cavolo nero, have that over the top with some parmesan. And, oh, and it's that's just, it hits all of the right wintry notes for mm. me. And then the next day, take two more sausages, turn them into some delicious spiced koftas with half a can of butter beans mm. and maybe have that with some pita bread and some pickles and make a little bit of parsley salad. And then the third day, you can take the same butter beans, second half of the can, and same parsley. This is possibly the simplest recipe in the book, but it's I was always disappointed. As a child, I thought that butter beans were made of butter. Oh. And then I discovered they, they should be, shouldn't they? <laughs> so then I just thought, okay, butter beans, I'm going to add some butter to them. And it, that recipe is, and a lot of friends have made this recipe. So, oh, it's so good. But the, the secret of it is to just buy some good kimchi. If you buy some good kimchi, mm. that person who made the kimchi has done all the work for you. Kimchi, quite a lot of butter, butter beans, heat it up. It is the most delicious combination to have with a couple of grilled sausages. Mm. And you feel like you've done something more than just mm. microwaving a ready meal. And yet it really hasn't taken much more time, but it's just it's how it makes you feel. Mm. I think you're right that the act of not doing it because it's just you kind of makes you feel worse, makes you feel lonelier because it's sort of reinforcing that idea that it that it isn't worth it because it's just you but that simply isn't true it simply isn't true I mean I think it's I think maybe that idea of it being just you has is a flip side of some very good things about food namely in many cultures there's this idea of hospitality mm. that food is about other people mm. and it's about welcoming people into your house yeah and that it, is a it can't be every meal. it can't be every meal yeah and I think it, the crucial thing is that we can just sometimes treat ourselves as our own best guest mm. I um, love that I love that we're going to pause there and talk about the sixth desert island dish what's your go-to dinner party dish so I don't really think in terms of dinner parties because I find it almost stressful and okay. um, I, I just it suddenly sounds like a performance if you call it yeah. a dinner party but there's a couple of dishes I have in the book I've often scaled up if I'm having just sort of one or two friends round and they really take the pressure off because they are roasting tin recipes. They're one of those kind of all-in-one things. You just put everything in the oven. And then 40 minutes later, your kitchen smells amazing. And you almost feel as if someone else has done the cooking. <laughs> and so one of them is um, chicken baked with fennel, a lot of fennel, a lot of white wine, juice of an orange, juice of a lemon, zest of an orange, zest of a lemon, some fennel seeds. A lot of mustard as well. And it doesn't, mm. strangely, it's based on a um, Letitia Clark recipe, but I adjusted the quantities of the liquids slightly and I boosted the amount of fennel because the fennel just soaks up all of the chickeny, um, winey juices. And so I just kind of want there to be as much fennel there as possible. And if you've got leftovers, mm. it's the most amazing thing to throw into a pilaf or a risotto mm. the next day. Yeah. 
And I love that dish. Everyone I've served it to loves it, and it tastes sort of complex. So it tastes as if you've spent hours lovingly simmering it, but the oven does the work. And my vegetarian, I was going to say it's equivalent, it's actually a completely different dish, but it's just another one that you throw in the oven, is a paneer gelfrezi, where again, within minutes of it going in the oven, it smells so good, it just relaxes me before anyone arrives, where it's got red peppers, it's got potatoes, it's got red onions, it's got various delicious spices, it's got tomatoes, and then you just have a block of paneer and... Pomegranate molasses is my key ingredient there, that it just adds a kind of sweet, sour tanginess mm. to it. So good. And do you tend to serve a pudding? Yeah, yeah. I do. <laughs> I kind of, I often serve two puddings. I mean, I often in the book, I sort of say, you know, you don't have to make two puddings. But again, I'm talking myself <laughs> down from the fact that, you know, don't make three. Um, yeah, I do tend to serve a pudding. And what would they be? One of the things which, again, is in the book, which I make a lot is orange and cardamom squares Mm. because I've always loved like times when I'm feeling super relaxed and have lots of time I think a lemon tart a good lemon tart is very hard to beat Mm. and if I were doing that I would just go straight to Claudia Roden can't better her recipe for it but I find pastry is one of those things which can almost sense when you're feeling nervous or anxious (laughs) and so the orange cardamom yes the orange (laughs) and cardamom squares But you are simply patting some shortbread into a tin with your fingers. So much more forgiving Mm. than the pat sucre sweet pastry that you need for a lemon tart. Then you just whisk together some eggs and sugar and cardamom. And it took a lot of... I started with a Claire Patak recipe for lemon bars. But I found it really hard to take that and adjust it to the flavours of orange and cardamom. Mm. Because orange doesn't have the same sharpness. So Mm. that's one of mine that I love making because you can have made it at breakfast time... And then by the time your friends come around in the evening, it's just there and it's Mm, ready. Perfect. On Desert Island Dishes, we have a cookbook corner. So I'd love to know, what is your most treasured cookbook? One of the ones that I've gone through three copies of, because it's so splattered, is How to Eat by Nigella. Mm. Um, I do find it hard to choose just one, though. But um, that's that's up there as one that has kind of woven its way into my life mm. and into my for family the, life. For the recipes as well as the writing. For the for the recipes, the writing, the sensibility, her mm. there's so much wisdom in that book. Mm. Um, Didn't she write it in six weeks or something? That book was completely inside her mm. and she said that she wrote the whole thing in six weeks, which yeah, I find... Which is incredible. ...astonishing. And one of the things I love about the book, she's so generous. And so that book has then led me to so many other books. You mentioned Laurie Colwyn mm. earlier. Like, she... It's one of the first people I saw saying there's this great American food writer called Laurie mm. Colwyn or she will reference the fact that her clementine cake is based on Claudia Roden's orange cake mm. or she'll reference things being Jane Grigson's recipe and I really love that, mm. that it's there's that generosity of not pretending that you've invented everything mm. because it's extremely hard to invent something mm. new in the kitchen. And it doesn't take away from you mentioning those other people. So I think it's, it's the opposite. Yeah. And actually, someone else that I consider very generous in that way, Ottolenghi, I know he his recipes divide people because some people say there's so many ingredients, mm. but the results taste fabulous. Mm. What I really like about him, in contrast to some other chefs, is particularly in his later books, he could 
completely open about the fact this is a team effort. Mm. His two most recent books have been something like OTK, which stands for Otolenghi Test Kitchen, and he's totally saying this is co-authored mm. with Noor and with Verena and with all of the other people who are working there developing the recipes, and I like that. I like that too. I, I feel like a moron because I've only just realised that people, that Ottolenghi isn't alone in having all of those people. He's just alone in being honest about it. He's alone in the it. openness. Yeah, which, but I... I, I very much hope he changes the culture of that well, because yeah. I think ghostwriting and cookbooks, it's one of the un, mm. unexamined things that people really don't know about. Mm. And I think if with, with some of the cases of these really famous chefs, if you were actually to think of it, you'd think, well, how would they have time yeah. to be running <laughs> five restaurants and doing this and doing that and writing it? Yeah. But it would be so nice if the culture could change mm. to the point where whoever it... it I don't think there's any shame in the fact that the chef might be the person who's thought up the ideas and maybe, we hope, cleared all of the recipes. Yeah. And, you know, we hope we that hope. they... We <laughs> really hope that they've been heavily involved. Yeah. But the person who's done the bulk of the writing work and recipe testing absolutely deserves equal mm. billing on the cover. And I just love your Yotamotolenghi yeah. for the fact that he does that. Yeah, he's a trailblazer. But, um, but I also love his food. And other people... Honey and Co, that first Honey and Co book by Itamar Srilovich and Sarit Packer. That's one of the books where I think, how is it that this book makes me feel at home, even though these are not the flavours and scents of my home? Mm. You know, these are the flavours and scents of Sarit and Itamar growing up in the Middle East. And mm. it's kind of smell of sumac and beautiful spices like makhleb, which you put in there, sweet baking and and kind of amazing sweet sour stews with kind of meat and and fruit. And it it does something quite astonishing to my mood when I cook from that book. It really calms me down. And I think food is something very magical in a way that you can sometimes imagine that you're inhabiting someone else's childhood as well mm, as your own. Very powerful. Well, on to the final seventh desert island dish. What is the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island? I find it impossible to choose just one <laughs> dish. I was once in Modena in Italy, in the part of Italy where they produce Parmesan, Parmigiano, and also um, balsamic vinegar, but they also have the most exquisite fresh pasta I've ever tasted. And there was a bowl of tortellini in brodo, you know, just simple stuffed pasta in a clear, clear meat broth. And that was one of the best things I've ever tasted. Mm. So I would kind of, I'd probably want to have that as a starter okay. and then then have, <laughs> I don't know. I have a friend called Simon in Cambridge where I live who's just known as this legendary cook, home cook. He will do attempt things where I think, I can't believe you've just done that for <laughs> Friday night dinner for um, eight people as if it's kind of nothing <laughs> special alongside a busy job. But there was one time we went round and he'd he'd kind of made some deep fried cod cheeks, goujons, just as a little starter to have with drinks. Wow. So maybe I'd just get, I'd have the tortellini. Get Simon round. Then get Simon, <laughs> then get Simon in. And then I might for pudding have my raspberry and hazelnut pavlova in the book, which is... Um, very much inspired by Jeremy Lee, who I think of just, I mean, he's the king of many forms of cooking. He's the king of pies, mm. but he's also the king of desserts in my book. Mm. And just how can you not feel better if you've got a cloud of meringue and cream and toasty little bits of hazelnut and raspberries? Gorgeous. Would that be, we're going to send you to the desert island. Thank you so much. Those Thank are your you desert so island much. Dishes. It's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you. 
So there we have it, another delicious day of Desert Island Dishes. Don't forget that you can rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you're listening, I think. There's a way to review it and it really does make such a difference because that's the way that it gets boosted in the charts and when it's boosted in the charts, that's how other people find out about it. So thank you very much. If you don't already, then come and follow me on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes and you can sign up for the newsletter and find a whole host of different recipes at DesertIslandDishes.co. Thank you very much to HG Walter, our sponsor for this month of Desert Island Dishes, and I will see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.